0: We can use the law to share with people that they have failed to live up to God's perfect standard, but praise God, Jesus Christ is perfect, he completely fulfilled the law and he came and died in our place.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Word Processing's cover to cover series in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible one by one in order to not only better understand them individually, but also to better understand how they fit together as an inspired whole. And for this series, as you already know, I've been recruiting some outside help, people who have spent a lot of time studying particular books of the Bible and today I'm excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Paul Weaver. Dr. Weaver is the Academic Dean of the Word of Life Global Bible Institute. He's a professor of Bible and theology, a productive author and is passionate about providing high quality Bible study resources that are affordable and within the reach of anyone serious about studying God's word. And that's really what we're going to use him for today as we come in this series to the book of Deuteronomy. Dr. Weaver, thanks for being willing to lend us a hand in this project.
0: So very excited to be
1: here with you. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let's start here. I like to begin these conversations just by allowing the professional, the expert, to situate us in the canon of Scripture and the storyline of the Bible. So when we come to the book of Deuteronomy, Dr. Weaver, where do we find ourselves?
0: Well, that's a great question and a great way to start this podcast. And as you know, Josiah, whenever you're studying in the book of the Bible, uh, you want to make sure that you understand the historical context. And so we do uh, We do need to understand where the book of Deuteronomy fits in the whole Narrative of Scripture, but it's also important to remember that the Book of Deuteronomy uh, is a part of the Pentateuch, and all five books of the Pentateuch—Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy—were written by Moses. And in many ways, it's one volume with five parts. In fact, Hmm. Josiah, as you know, I was a a Bible professor and missionary in Hungary for 13 years, and in the Hungarian Bible, uh, they call the Pentateuch, the Books of Moses. Hmm, Interesting. Uh, Genesis is labeled in the Hungarian Bible as Moses 1. Exodus is labeled as Moses 2, Leviticus, Moses 3, Numbers, they call Moses 4, and uh, Deuteronomy is referred to as Moses 5. So the Pentateuch really is, in one sense, one volume with one storyline written by one author comprised of five different parts. And, And the Book of Moses provided a detailed history Uh, The books of Moses, I say, uh, provide an inspired and inerrant history, but also a theological history of the people of God. So as we think about the storyline of Scripture, it begins, you know, helps to go back to Genesis even. begins with Genesis and the creation of the universe, the creation of mankind. And in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, we see the purpose of God for creating man and woman. And he created them to rule and to reign in his stead. And so we were created by God to rule over the earth. So uh, I do want to go back to Genesis and just kind of walk our our way through why, where we are in Deuteronomy, but Genesis 126 to 28 is so crucial. And I'm reading now, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, as we understand the storyline, we need to understand uh, that humanity is the only created being that God says was created in His image. We were created like God in our attributes. We love because God is loving. We're creative beings because God is a creative God, and so on and so forth. But the image of God also involves our function. Right, as God's image bearers, uh, we were given the incredible responsibility to rule over the earth in His place and in His and under His authority. So. Functionally, we are, we are like God, not just like God in attributes. So now something happened, as you know, Josiah, something happened to limit our effectiveness to do what God intended us to do, uh, to rule as his image bearers. And that thing was sin, right? Sin's entrance into the world through Adam and Eve resulted in man receiving a sin nature. Theologians speak of a constitutional change of nature. We're fallen, sinful beings. And we personally also choose to sin. So the purpose of God for human, for humanity is to rule and reign in his place as his image bearers. And this role and responsibility is presently limited by the curse of sin on the world and our sin nature inherited from Adam. So we're not able to fulfill this God-given responsibility in its entirety. right? This will only be fully realized in the coming millennial kingdom when man is redeemed and creation is restored to a pre-fall condition. Only then will man fully realize this incredible responsibility. And and at that time, Jesus Christ himself will rule on the throne of David. And you and I, his church, um, those who have placed their faith in Christ for salvation uh, in this age, his church will rule and reign with him. So, but between the fall of mankind, just as one, uh, just as uh, three, excuse me, and the reign of Christ on the earth, with his people ruling and reigning with him requires the coming of a redeemer that's promised in Genesis 3.15, right? The scholars call the proto-evangelium or the first gospel um, presentation and presentation and a calling out of people from which the Messiah will come. So, in Genesis 12, Abraham is called by God to leave his land, to leave his people, uh, to leave his culture, And to go to a place unknown to him. Abraham had faith. He followed God's command. God promised Abraham that he would give him a land, the land of Israel, that he would give him a seed or descendants greater than the number of the stars in the sky or sand on the seashore. And from that seed will come the Messiah. And that through that seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And of course, this blessing certainly references the redemption made available through christ and the righteous kingdom that christ will institute in the coming theocratic kingdom the coming one thousand year reign of christ on the earth so the storyline of scripture in general and for the uh, pentateuch in particular follows the descendants of abraham because the descendants of abraham would form a nation a called out nation who were to function as a kingdom of priests and we know abraham's descendant jacob whose name was changed by God to Israel, and Jacob's family, his family went down to Egypt. A family went down to Egypt, but several hundred years later, a nation departed from Egypt. And so God sends the nation of Israel leader Moses, and through a supernatural series of events, God redeems his people from slavery in Egypt. The book of Exodus records that supernatural working of God to free his people from slavery, and to lead a nation from Egypt to the land He had promised to their ancestors, uh, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and so God sends plagues upon the Egyptians. He parts the Red Sea; the people walk on dry land in the midst of sea, and then God causes the sea to destroy Pharaoh's armies, who sought to recapture the Hebrew people. So, despite all of these incredible supernatural events that the, the Hebrew people witnessed firsthand, they saw it; they experienced this firsthand. Despite all of that, they did not. it didn't take very long before the Hebrew people began to complain against God and doubt God. And so over and over again, they complained against God. God was faithful to his people, but his people did not trust him. And their lack of faith is most epitomized in the famous or infamous event that took place at Kadesh Barnea. Everything was set for the Israelites to enter into the land promised to Abraham, their forefather, and reaffirmed to Moses, they were in position to cross the Jordan, conquer the Canaanites, and occupy the promised land. But instead, they doubted God. When the 12 spies returned from the land to present a report, the people listened to the fearful 10 men rather than the two confident men. The Hebrew people determined that they were not up to the task, and in effect, they did not trust God or his chosen leader, Moses. So despite God's reassurance of success, they failed to listen and obey him. The result was 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and all those over the age of 20 would not enter the promised land. They would die in the wilderness. Yet despite their faithlessness, God remained faithful to his promise that he would, um, that he would give These people, a land, a seed, a blessing. The book of Numbers concludes with the immediate future of Israel uncertain, right? Their future is entirely dependent upon their covenant renewal, their faithfulness to that covenant. And it is this covenant renewal which links the book of Numbers to Deuteronomy. Due to their repeated violation of their covenant responsibilities, due to their repeated disobedience and faithlessness, there was a need to renew the covenant. Renew the, their promise to obey the covenant, to be faithful to it, as they or prior to the entrance into the land, as we see in the book of Joshua. So the essence of the book of Deuteronomy is covenant renewal. A covenant was made 40 years prior at Horeb, but because of their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, all those under 20 years old at that time, with the exception of Caleb, Joshua, and Aaron, and Moses, died in the wilderness. So Therefore, the book of Deuteronomy is uh, involved in a repeating of the law for a new generation as they prepare to inhabit the land promised to Abraham. Moses reminds this new generation of the covenant their fathers made with God and their covenant-keeping responsibilities to God, that they were to be a kingdom of priests, that they were to be devoted to Yahweh and reject the practices uh, of the pagans, of the worship of the false gods, Of the other nations surrounding them so the book of Deuteronomy records in written form moses's oral addresses to this new generation in order to recount for them the events that have transpired in the wilderness as a result of the disbelief of their parents and grandparents and it reminds them of the promises of blessing that will result if they obey the commands of god and also, a reminder that if they disobey the commands of God, they will be cursed. There will be consequence for that as well. So, despite their parents' rebellion, God still plans to allow them to enter into the land that He promised to them. But Moses seeks to remind them that they must fulfill their covenant responsibilities. So that's where Deuteronomy is in this big uh, in this narrative. Really, as we seek to see how God is going to use this group, this Hebrew people called out. Be a kingdom of priests, and how that really leads and uh, continues this meta narrative, this narrative which will eventually be completely fulfilled when Christ rules on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and we have the privilege to rule and reign with Him.
1: That's very helpful, especially you reminding us how this is all connected. I love how the Hungarians label the Pentateuch. That's very helpful in uh, in combating perhaps my. Need your reaction, which is to divide these into five very separate accounts, but they are one very much connected narrative. So it's very helpful to bring us up to Deuteronomy like that and set it in its proper context. I'm wondering now, as we've come to Deuteronomy and now I'm looking at the book as a whole, can you give us a bit of an aerial view of that book? It's long enough that maybe an outline would be helpful to get my mind around the whole.
0: Yeah. So uh, the book of Deuteronomy is comprised of four sermons. So really, those sermons form the structure. this book and uh, these sermons are to a new generation right and they're to prepare this new generation into uh, prepare them for entrance into the land and so the first sermon is recorded in chapters one through four and in it Moses recounts Israel's history from Horeb the events of Horeb the giving of the law on the first occasion to Moses and it includes And to the Jewish people, it includes the failure all the way up to the failure of Moses to obey God, resulting in him not being allowed to enter into the land when he he struck the rock rather than speaking to it. Uh, The second sermon is chapters four through 26. This section records the Ten Commandments and other laws. And this is the second giving of the law. And it's from this second giving of the law that we get the English name Deuteronomy ro is Latin for second, and mnemonic is Latin for law. However, the book of Deuteronomy is not literally a second law, but it's a repetition of many of the commands and the entire Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, a second time. Then there's a third sermon that's found in chapters 27 through 29. And in this sermon, Moses reminds this new generation that the Mosaic law is conditional. In other words, there were curses upon those who disobey it and blessing upon those who obey it. So it's different, a different covenant, different covenant than the Abrahamic covenant or later the Davidic covenant or the new covenant. Those are all unconditional covenants. This is a conditional covenant where a promise of blessing is given for obedience and a promise of cursing or consequence for disobedience. So God will send them into captivity if they disobey. They'll be occupied and oppressed and exiled by foreign nations if they disobey. But if they obey, they will continue in the land. They will continue to see the gods hand of blessing upon them. Then the fourth and final sermon is found in chapters 29 through 34. And in it, Moses reviews the history of Israel from the Exodus to the conquest. And he makes until till their entrance and he makes another appeal to remain faithful to their covenant obligations. And he begins a transition of leadership to Joshua. Uh, he, Moses knows that he himself is not going to be allowed to enter into the promised land because God told him that he wouldn't be able to due to his disobedience um, for striking the rock rather than speaking to it. Uh, and he's therefore passing on the mantle of leadership to Joshua in this fourth and final sermon. So that's the core content of the book of Deuteronomy, four main sermons or addresses by Moses to the Hebrew people.
1: Well, you've mentioned a couple of times the 10 Commandments as well, which probably is the most famous part of Exodus and Deuteronomy, or certainly one of the most famous parts of Exodus and certainly the most famous part about Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter five, the second giving of the law and the 10 Commandments. I'm wondering if you could say something toward the idea of the Ten Commandments and the law and what they represented and what they represent for Israel when they received them. Why would God give this nation of people that he's preserved this specific of a law?
0: Yeah, so when we think of the Ten Commandments, you're right, the term law, um, it's important to know that law can be used to refer to the Ten Commandments, can also be referred to all of the, what, 613 different guidelines, commandments, both negative and positive. But when we think of the Ten Commandments specifically, but also the law generally, I think it's helpful to think through three categories of laws. Uh, Most scholars will recognize there are three different kinds of laws or different categories of laws. Uh, The first category of laws we call the moral law. This is what we normally think of when we think of the Ten Commandments, positive commands such as honor your father and mother, and negative commands, such as you shall not kill. These are in the realm of morality, what the Israelites should do and should not do because God commanded them that it was morally right or morally wrong. Uh, The second group of laws, we might call the civil or judicial laws. And these laws explain how the Israelites should behave as a nation, what should happen to carry out justice or repayment when something happens against you unjustly, So, for example, what happens when your cow is killed by someone else's animal? What happens when someone steals your property? Uh, These are the civil or judicial laws. The civil laws were clearly intended to help the nation thrive as a people and relate to one another. Uh, Today, we have a lot of civil laws in every society because you have to have recognized laws so that the civilization doesn't go into chaos. And of course, we even have some pushback on that, that some don't want to have policing and things like that. Well, that would result in chaos if we didn't have laws and someone to enforce laws. The third group of laws are often called ceremonial laws, or uh, how are you to offer sacrifices, when to offer sacrifices, what kind of sacrifices, so on and so forth. And many of these laws focus on the Levitical system and the leading of worship by the Levitical priests. So each group of these laws have different focus or purpose, but all of them were to be obeyed by the Jewish people. And by obeying them, they were worshiping Yahweh, whether the laws were the moral laws, ceremonial laws, or civil laws. So that's helpful to remember. But then Paul makes it clear in Galatians 3.24 that the law as a whole were to point us to the Messiah. They were a tutor that would point us forward to Christ in the need of a Savior. The way they point us to Christ is by reminding us that we are incapable of perfect obedience to the law. And as the book of Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, and Paul references in Romans three ten, cursed is everyone that does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Hmm. Just so I remember once I was listening to a debate, including a Jewish rabbi, uh, Rabbi Shmuley was his name, and two Protestant evangelicals. And the Jewish rabbi said to the two Protestant evangelicals, I don't want Christ's righteousness. I want my righteousness. And as I listened to that sentiment by Rabbi Shmuley, tears welled up in my eyes because Rabbi Shmuley missed entirely the whole main purpose of the law, which is to prove that there is none righteous. No, not one, there's none who does good. And so Rabbi Shmuley was not righteous enough to appease a holy God. A perfect God uh, requires a perfect standard perfection. And all people fail miserably to meet that standard. So thankfully, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we uh, might receive Christ's righteousness. So the law was a tutor to point Jewish people to the coming Messiah. And we also learned from Paul in Galatians 3.19 that the law was instituted by God to restrain sin. And this is probably a reference to the moral laws, civil and judicial laws, but uh, but not necessarily the ceremonial laws of worship. In other words, if there were no moral official laws and no consequence to those uh, to breaking of those laws, chaos would have ensued human nature, human sinful nature. uh, When there are no consequences for sin, we choose to sin and operate in our selfish interests. If there's no consequence for killing, people will kill and take what they want from others whom they kill. So the law also served to restrain sin, and that is why all societies today also have laws. They recognize that a society without laws will self-destruct. And uh, the Samaric ceremonial laws had a very important part as well. Right as I previously mentioned, this was given to the Jewish people to help them understand how to approach a holy God how to worship him through the various sacrifices and offerings, how to observe the various religious holidays. And so there are multiple reasons for the law given by God. Um, Those are a few of, uh, of the most important ones, I think.
1: No, that's excellent. I think a plain reading of the Bible, if you're in a Bible reading plan, going through Genesis and you come to Deuteronomy, it seems very obvious that this law was given to a specific people At a specific time in a specific Mm -hmm. land but that begs the question because we know that all scripture is inspired by god and useful and it's still in the canon and so i want to talk now about the application of what you have described very well this law for us today i'm not israel i'm not living in the land so i want to talk about how we pull that law forward appropriately and i want to ask this question because there are some facets of the law that christians today seem to give up with ease and rightly so, like cities of refuge and dietary laws. We we give those up. Those aren't for us, we say very easily. But there are others that seem to want to extend other laws into modern times. There's been a renewed, it seems like, interest in Sabbath observance, right? Even mm-hmm. in Protestant Christians and almost to the point of being Pharisaic in their dictation of the Sabbath, how this is something that continues today for our, our health. I'm just wondering if you can help us to understand this seemingly inconsistent reading and application of the mosaic law how do we apply it today what does it mean for us today as christians
0: it's a great question very practical very important question and uh, you're correct that virtually all christians recognize there are certain components of the old testament law that are not even possible to fulfill today okay. including the various animal sacrifices that were to be offered in the temple of god well in 8070, 70 the temple was destroyed And today, if you go to the Temple Mount, you will find a Muslim shrine there called the Dome of the Rock. Mm -hmm. No possible way to observe those commands. Additionally, most everyone agrees that uh, certain dietary laws are no longer binding. Right? We can now eat pork. We can eat shrimp. We can eat meat that is rare or medium rare. These are things that would not have been allowable under the Old Testament. In Acts ten fifteen, Peter is told by God in a vision that what he has called clean, that which he has called clean, don't call unclean. And so as you point out, the city of refuge are clearly not being used by anyone today. Uh, The one area that some Christians, especially those of a Presbyterian or reformed background want to continue following are the moral laws, right? Specifically the 10 commandments. And although I would argue that they don't consistently obey the law of honoring the Sabbath, since they worship on Sunday rather than Saturday, uh, nor, they, nor do they strictly adhere to it like an Old Testament saint would have. Numbers 15, verses 32 to 36 says that anyone gathering sticks on the Sabbath, uh, which was Saturday, not Sunday, be stoned. So there's some very clear guidelines as to what you can and cannot do and what is and is not honoring the Sabbath. So I believe, and I know you do as well, and dispensationalists believe that we are not bound by any of the Old Testament laws In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. Jesus, being fully God, being fully man, was the only human being that perfectly obeyed the law. Jesus fulfilled the law and instituted a new covenant, not the old law or old covenant or Old Testament, but a new covenant. And the book of Hebrews reminds us that the old covenant was not sinful. We're sinful. The old covenant was good, we are bad. The law, the old covenant reminded us that we were incapable of obeying it in its entirety. That's why it was not sufficient for us, but Christ fulfilled it entirely. And so the author of Hebrews also states, the fact that we have a new covenant reminds us that the old covenant was insufficient. So the new covenant has replaced the old covenant. Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament perfectly Now, nine of the Ten Commandments, as you know, were repeated and are repeated in the New Testament. And so uh, those nine commandments are binding to us under the New Covenant. The only one of the Ten Commandments that were not repeated of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments uh, was honoring the Sabbath. And so now you ask the question, is the Old Testament law useful today? Uh, Although the Old Testament laws are not binding for us today, except for the ones that are repeated in the New Testament, They are helpful to us in our evangelistic efforts, for example. Mm. We can walk through the Ten Commandments and show how we have violated God's laws. We have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. We have lied. We have stolen. We have coveted. We have even, uh, and even though we may not have killed, Jesus reminds us uh, that in our hearts we have hated our brother, which is the sin of the heart that leads to killing And even though we may not have committed adultery, we have lusted in our hearts, which is what leads to adultery. So the law is still a tutor in that sense, right? It's a tutor that points us to Christ. We can use the law to share with people that they have failed to live up to God's perfect standard. Standard. But praise God, Jesus Christ is perfect. He completely fulfilled the law and he came and died in our place. And that we can accept. And as a result, we can accept uh, Christ's finished work on the cross. By faith in that finished work, we exchange our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. Mm-hmm. No sin became sin for us. We who knew no sin so very well receive Christ's righteousness. Mm-hmm.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there's a sense in which it, it's helpful to divide up the law to understand it better. But there is a sense in which the law is a cohesive whole. James 2 says very clearly, you break one, you're guilty of it all. And you articulated so well earlier this idea that if you fall short of God's standard, which is shown in the law, his character is shown in the law, his holiness, his perfection. If we break one, we fall short. We fall, as Paul says in Romans 3. And so we don't want to get into a place where we start comparing, well, I'm less of a lawbreaker than so-and-so down the street. No, no, the law was set there, as you said, as a schoolmaster to show how we have all missed the mark. We've all fallen short.
0: Yeah, and there's a great journal article in the BibSAC, which is the, the journal of the seminary that you and I both attended, and it's entitled The End of the Law by Charles Ryrie. And so Charles Ryrie makes a strong argument, argument for that very thing that we tend to categorize, and I think those categories are helpful to think through, it is one law and so you can't just pull out certain parts and obey some and not the others it's either all or nothing uh, so you can't break away the moral law and say we're not going to fulfill the judicial and the and the ritual laws but just the 10 commandments or nine or however many but uh, but it's it's one package right christ fulfilled the entire law
1: well you mentioned this a little bit already in your aerial view of the book But the book ends, Deuteronomy ends with Moses addressing God's people for the last time and blessing them before he dies without actually entering the promised land. As you mentioned, he takes them all the way right to the border. And because of their sin, they don't get to enter and neither does he. I wonder if you can summarize again those final chapters for us and maybe with an eye toward Moses as a leader. And what can we Mm -hmm. learn from this great man of God, a great man of God, Mm -hmm. a leader of God uh, who is imperfect like we are? What can we learn? Mm -hmm. What lessons can we learn from his life and leadership?
0: Yeah, so as you indicate, Moses knows that he's not able to enter the land, and so he must prepare the people to follow after Joshua, their new leader. So Moses informs the Israelites uh, that the Lord will not allow him to cross over the Jordan River, will not allow him to enter the land of promise, but he reassures the people that God will go ahead of them, that God will provide for them for victory in the future as he had done in the past. Uh, so Moses commands the people to be strong and courageous. Moses then writes down the Ten Commandments, excuse me, writes down the commandments they had previously given in his sermon. So he'd given uh, these different commandments, which is what we call the Deutero- Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law in chapters 5 to 26. It's in uh, sermon form, but now he's going to write them down, as well as uh, chapters 27 and 28. So that the blessings and cursings that he mentioned, he's writing those down and he commands the nation of Israel to read these commandments publicly in front of all of Israel every seventh year. That's found in chapter one, verses 10 to 12. And so this exercise would serve a twofold purpose. One, it would cause the people to fear the Lord as they repeated this verbally uh, every seven years. And second, it would instruct their children to do the same. And so in this last section, section Joshua is also commissioned. Moses calls for Joshua. He commands Joshua also be strong and courageous. And this time he formally commissions him to lead the people, the God's people into the land, to the promised land. Then Moses rebukes the nation of Israel for their past rebellions. Remember, this is the rebellion of their parents and their grandparents who have all died in the wilderness. But Moses also predicts that they too will rebel. So it's a word of prediction, but also a rebuke and a warning uh, not to to rebel. So then God calls Moses to go up to Mount Nebo, where he would get a glimpse of the promised land prior to dying. Uh, God repeats to Moses that he's not going to enter in the land. And it is in the wilderness of Zen, uh, rather than speaking to the rock, that's where Moses struck it. And so, so we're reminded that Moses doesn't get to enter again, another reminder of that because of his disobedience at that moment, so Moses then gathers the Israelites together. He pronounces a blessing on each tribe, each individual tribe, and then a general blessing to all of Israel. And as far as what we can learn from Moses' leadership, uh, Moses feared God and obeyed God. Right? He, you hate to be at one event in his life. Right? He did. He did uh, struggle in that one event and not trust God and didn't obey God. Uh, but the looking at the depth of his life and all that he. Uh, was used by God. He's one of the big two, right? You think of the Jewish leaders, Abraham, Moses, even today, uh, then David. So those are three monumental figures that God used in a great way uh, for the people of God. Obviously, Moses wasn't perfect, but God used Moses in remarkable ways. The vast majority of his ministry was characterized by faithfulness, by obedience. He's an example to follow. He he feared God rather than man. He was had to go to people and rebuke them for their lack of faithfulness to God and to their covenant. So I don't believe he was in, here's another point. I think he was, I don't think he was intimidated or insecure with Joshua. He wanted Joshua to succeed. Sometimes can be secure as leaders, right? And be concerned about the people behind us. So they might take our place, but I don't think Moses was that. He wanted Joshua to succeed and, and helped and encouraged him and helped to prepare for his transition as God's next appointed leader, one who would take them in the land, one who would help them, would lead them in victory uh, in battle over the Canaanites. So uh, Moses was uh, used greatly by God in a lot of great ways we can learn from his example.
1: You mentioned something earlier about how every seven years they were to publicly, before the nation of Israel, reread this covenant, reread this law. And you said so that they could pass on to their children and their children's children as they are going into a promised land surrounded by pagan nations. That just causes me pause today, Doctor Weber. I think of us as Christians surrounded by people who don't share our beliefs. What are we doing to pass on our beliefs? Not the law, not the Torah, not the just the the Pentateuch necessarily, but pass mm-hmm. on our worldview, pass on our beliefs, our faith to the next generations. It was so woven into the fabric of Hebrew culture then. And I'm just wondering, maybe you can comment on this. How do we do that today in our culture, in the Christian culture, in the church culture? How do we so weave this into our lives that it just organically gets passed on? I feel like we're missing that a little bit today.
0: Yeah, uh, just yesterday, as you know, I have a podcast as well. And I had Ted Tripp, who's who's the author of Shepherding a Child's Heart. And we were talking through, and he's got a book also called Instructing the Child's Heart. And we were recording series on that book, and just he's talked about 100% saturation. And I appreciate that statement. Mm. In other words, it's got to be who we are, right? It's got to be intentional uh, training our children as we wake up in the morning, as we go about our day. At the end of the day, it's it's got to be who we are. And we have to be looking for opportunities to remind our children to look, look at the faithfulness of God, uh, looking reflecting back on his faithfulness in the past. And, and so it is it's not a, uh, it's not the church isn't going to do it, the church is going to reinforce what we teach in our homes. But it's not the church's job to train our children. It's our job as parents and as grandparents. And so we're thankful we need to be the church is so important, right? It's equips us, it helps us to train and invest into our children. But we have to take that responsibility very seriously and be intentional in how we use our time, how we organize our days and and making the church a very vital part of our lives and not a uh, just something tacked on as it's convenient. So uh, I think that 100% saturation really uh, was a great, great statement, I think. Um, and uh, Dr. Tripp was talking about uh, marketing does this, right? You don't, uh, you don't hear the Geico commercial, Gecko Geico just once, right? You hear over and over and over again, you know, we can't just say something once and expect it to take root, we need to continually remind the faithfulness of God and continually be teaching the principles found in God's word. That's great. Sorry, that was a
1: rabbit trail, but I couldn't resist. I just am struck by that all the time where it's just built into the fabric of their culture. And that. As something we so desire here as well. Back to Deuteronomy as a, as a whole, as we wrap up, just a couple of final questions. If you were going to summarize this book of the Bible and articulate its main thrust, why is it important? Why would God preserve it for us? What is Deuteronomy about? Your elevator pitch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The main idea of Deuteronomy is covenant renewal. Hmm. Covenant was made previously. But the nation of Israel had rebelled and had been unfaithful to the covenant obligations uh, they had uh, gone after the the, na- the gods of the nations around them. They lost fear. They lost the fear of God, the respect for Him. And although those over those twenty years at that time of the rebellion, with the exception of a few names, everyone died in the wilderness. A reminder was needed as they go into land, uh, the Promised Land. A reminder to be faithful to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So this book is important and God preserved it for us right to provide us with an inspired historical account of the events of Israel's history number 1 but also to remind us of our natural simple, natural sinful nature uh to forget the faithfulness of God we're too very we're very susceptible uh, quick to call on God when we need him cry out to him when we need him but quick to forget uh the faithfulness of God in the past and so It's a reminder to us to to continually reflect on God's faithfulness. Uh, We have times in our lives, right, where we need covenant renewal, and I'm using that metaphorically, right? We need renewal in our lives. We need to refocus our attention, recognize when we've failed to run back to our Savior, run back to God who has His arms open wide for us. Uh, So reflection on the actions of the Hebrew people, Uh, we must also reflect on our own human weaknesses and susceptibility to fail and forget the faithfulness of god
1: yeah it's great I, I love how you focus us on our response in faithfulness which is sometimes wavering sometimes lacking sometimes strong sometimes weak but it's a response to god's never wavering faithfulness that mm-hmm. he is always faithful and we can always come back to him i appreciate how you highlight that now more personally how has it affected you in your study of deuteronomy How is this book been used by God in your life to teach or prove, correct or train you in righteousness toward Christ likeness.
0: Great question. I'm reminded that we have a faithful God. Mm. He is completely entirely faithful and you know this word chesed, said right the loyal love of God. he's so faithful to his covenant uh, to his promises what he promised. Abraham Isaac, and Jacob will be fully realized in the coming kingdom. what he promises to you and to I to me in scripture. Uh, we can count on. We can learn from the failures of the Hebrew people and determine not repeat the mistakes of history. Um, But when we do, we run back to our Savior who extends uh, his loyal love and faithfulness to us. As a leader, I've learned it from Moses, an inspiring example, a man who is faithful and obedient to God, who was used mightily by God, who is willing to speak truth to Pharaoh speak truth to the Israelites, he feared God, and he cared more about what God thought of him than what anyone else thought of him, which is so important for us as leaders, especially, but anyone to, we're all leaders, right, whether it's in our home, in our communities, in our churches, and so what a great example Moses was. Then as a leader also, he was building into that next generation, he was building into leaders and other individuals. He invested his time into them and prepared them uh, to take that next mantle of leadership. And I want to be doing that, looking for and investing in others to take carry on the work that God has entrusted to me. So we can learn a lot theologically, the history, theological history of the people, but also uh, from the example of, of the leadership of Moses. That's great. Thanks,
1: Dr. Weaver, for walking us through a big, dense book and you boiled it down to an understandable and applicable uh, way And I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Thanks for your study. And I appreciate you sharing both with us today.
0: My pleasure. Again, I enjoyed. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org and make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible, cover to cover.